Hello and welcome to the Most Talk Podcast. This is Connor O'Boyle. Today I'll be speaking with American music supervisor, record producer and music educator Andy Hill. Andy has served as Vice President of Music Production for Disney during the Renaissance period and oversaw a number of acclaimed films such as The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, The Little Mermaid and Aladdin. Since then he's gone on to set up his own production company and he's worked on other pictures such as Anastasia, Evolution and James and the Giant Peach. Andy has recently brought out a new book called Scoring the Screen, which I highly recommend, and we get into in some depth. So without further preamble, I give you Andy Hill. I'm here with Andy Hill, uh, and he is doing a two-week masterclass with us here at Pulse College, and I've stolen him away for half an hour to chat some shop. So, Andy, can you give us a little introduction and tell us how you got started in the in the industry? Sure. Um, you know, I mentioned that Danny Elfman um, has said in interviews that he had this kind of epiphany, sitting in a darkened movie theater listening to the score for The Day the Earth Stood Still, and that was the moment when he decided, this is what I want to do. Um, I don't have, there was no similar moment of just, you know, blinding light or Satori for me. But I think that if there's a genesis to my passion for film music, it probably is um, Elmer Bernstein. Now, as a kid, um, like, like almost every kid, you know, I had a craving for action films and I had my heroes and among my heroes in those days were people like Steve McQueen. Um, There was a film called The Great Escape uh, that um, Elmer Bernstein scored, I think 1962, something like that. And just about the same time, he also scored To Kill a Mockingbird, which was the adaptation of a successful novel, had a big, big impact in the States and elsewhere on the civil rights movement and the issue for uh, for voting rights for black folks and so forth. Um, the scores couldn't have been more different, but they were clearly by the same person. There were certain, um, there was something about the voice that I found incredibly powerful and attractive. And I, I was a, a very, very small kid at that point. But I remember wanting to understand what what it was that made that music so moving for me. Um, Part of it turned out to be his use of rhythm. Part of it turned out to be his use of uh, non-traditional modes. Um, To Kill a Mockingbird is is a score that is, um, its it's color is largely based on the Lydian mode, which has now become you know, as a result of that that score's success, it's become kind of a um, a convention, almost a cliche for composers to use Lydian when they want to evoke this kind of nostalgic, okay. you know, um, pastoral sense. But at any rate, there was a bunch, there was a lot going on in the scores that intrigued me that I, I did not understand at all because, uh, you know, I was not a little Mozart. I wasn't raised from three, mm-hmm. you know, to understand music in a formal sense. There was music in the house. My dad um, was a soprano sax player, 
kind of a middling jazz player, never great, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. big ambitions, probably not in enough, you know, yeah. not enough native talent. Th this is in Chicago? This is in, um, largely in Chicago. In Chicago, yeah. right, okay. So yeah. there would have been a, a fairly, um, you know, lively scene there at Absolutely. that time. Um, like obviously Chicago's still fairly um, central and important in terms of its output, but you know, it was a even big, more it was so a big then. town for jazz, a big town for the blues, and um, he was a practicing lawyer. But he would go out at night and um, and stay out to the wee hours, you know, um, working with his mates. Now there was a lot of music in the house, uh, always a lot of music on the uh, on the phonograph, and and some of these influences would be common, you know, to other composers as well. Uh, Prokofiev, mm -hmm. very popular with both my mom and dad. Right, you okay. know, Peter and the Wolf, of course, for me, yeah. Romeo and Juliet, uh, for them, the Lieutenant Kiji Suite was one I remember from early on. Again, kind of just, you know, wet my appetite to understand what made this stuff work. Um, and then, honestly, from childhood through, you know, young adulthood, I didn't do much to, to cultivate um, a, any sort of rigor or any sort of real, you know, discipline when it came to music. Played clarinet for a while, you know, with the school orchestra, hated it. Um, convinced my mother to buy me a guitar loved that, um, became the lead singer in a band mm -hmm. and, and remained um, lead vocalist for a series of bands all the way through to about the age of 30. Um, and it really wasn't until, now I, I, I never lost the fascination for film music or for film. I've always been a cinema nut and the movies have always been a staple part of my diet. But it really wasn't until the, the sort of rock and roll dreams um, yeah. had finally kind of played themselves out. Right. And, and, and by the way, that, that whole thing, that's kind of generational. I mean, growing up when I grew up, in the, mostly in the 70s, mm -hmm. uh, that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to be rock stars. Yeah. You know, um, quit college, formed a band, toured around for a while. Um, that didn't click, went back to college, started another band, toured around for a while. That didn't click. Um, moved to a goat farm in Western Maryland with another band <laughs> during the disco era, of all things. Um, and did, did, the, did the music that your bands played, was, was it consistent or... Did it change? It was um, pair band in, in the beginning. Of course, it, it's all cover stuff. That's right, how yeah, almost course. everybody yeah, yeah, starts. Yeah. But once, um, once I, you know, my songwriting abilities matured a little bit. I think you know, for a while, I tried to walk the same path that people like Van Morrison and Bruce Springsteen, particularly Bruce on the, in the earlier records, had, which is kind of a, you know, a, a, a white soul, yeah. you know, blue-eyed soul yeah. sort of thing. That never felt really natural. Uh, 
in fact, my writing for the bands never felt entirely my own until we got to what was known as the, the New Wave era, which is basically 1978 to 82. And that's Blondie, that's the Cars. Uh, that, right, that's the very beginning of the whole 80s, um, the kind of renaissance of, of um, the, the, the kind of uh, really well-crafted but, but frivolous pop yeah, music yeah. that had been popular in the 60s, and I loved that. Yeah, it's kind of making a, a, a return now. You've got that sort of synth pop Right. Uh, it's really heavy, kind of melody-driven. Yeah, pops kind of yeah. it's kind of coming back now. There's I don't know if you've heard. There's a there's an English band called the 1975. Have you heard those yes, guys? Yes, I have. I it's have. very very nostalgic for for that sort of because I don't think it tone. ever goes away. Yeah. I mean, I think that you can go back and you can find. Um, pop tunes from mm. the 40s mm-hmm. that have that same sort of it's a it's a it's an infectiousness a bounciness a swing yeah. um and a cleverness in with wordplay yeah. Yeah. and lyrics that um you know that always seems to work and you can find in the in the 50s in the doo-wop era yeah. there's an equivalent of that mm-hmm. in the early even the pre-beatles 60s with phil Spector and yeah. producers like that and then of course the beatles just kicked it up a few more notches and um and and really pop pop music um other than rhythm and blues essentially been defined by brits ever since then yeah. but i I loved that stuff, and I was very much at home. However, um, when we had my last band had a kind of commitments-like ending, in yeah. that um, it was success that killed us. Right. We finally, finally got the big manager, and you know the offer of a record deal, and that broke up the band because okay. we simply couldn't agree on anything. By that, by that mm-hmm. point, we all hated each other. I think that's the story of a yeah. of a generation of of musicians that what they seek ultimately destroys them, isn't right. it? It's the right. classic, um, almost like tragedy. It's like a Shakespearean tragedy, isn't it? The whole story leads up to this moment, and then that moment is the moment that destroys the it's a great irony it's uh sometimes it comes down to um not being quite ready for what you want for Mm -hmm. what you thought you wanted fear of success yeah um sometimes it's that the pressures of getting that close Mm -hmm. to the gold ring um (laughs) cause dissension Mm -hmm. and 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 conflict yeah you know um there's always a certain amount of that going on in a band anyway, in any yeah. ensemble. There's um, just like in a marriage. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, somewhere along the line during this um, odd kind of uh, gypsy road that I traveled, I had managed to get a, a film degree okay. from uh, New York University. I'd gone there in the early mid-70s which was not too long after Martin Scorsese mm. had been there, and um, and his vibe was everywhere. Mm. Um, 
lots of kids were going out west to go to USC or UCLA because they wanted to emulate Zemeckis and Spielberg and the sort of California guys. Yeah. Um, I was more drawn to uh, the gritty, slightly more European style of filmmaking that, that Scorsese exemplified. So I decided I wanted to go to NYU, and I was there at a great time because the school was still new, and the classes were small, and my classmates were people like Joel Silver, who later went on to produce the Matrix films, um, Amy Heckerling, who became um, a quite accomplished comedic director in the 90s, uh, Martin Brest, who directed Scent of a Woman and Meet Joe Black. I mean, these were the kids I went to school with. And what happened to me there is that I, I went there to, to study screenwriting. Okay. And then, but I brought my guitar with me. And every night I'd go out to the showcase clubs, the same place down in the, in the uh, West Village where Bob Dylan used to play back in the 60s. And they had open mic nights. And I was still hoping to get the record contract, right. even though I had now gone on to do something more responsible, a little bit more responsible. Um, I still hoped there'd be a break. So I'd go out in moonlight playing these showcase gigs. Um, it's just acoustic guitar, solo acoustic vocal? Acoustic guitar and me with the songs mm -hmm. I'd written. Occasionally I'd get a, uh, um, a second guitarist or a keyboard player or something like that, but mm -hmm. usually it was just me. And I'd invite, invite the students come see me so oh hey this guy writes music mm -hmm. we can use him to score our film yeah yeah then as now filmmakers really don't know the difference between a songwriter and a composer and a composer yeah, yeah. you know music is music mm -hmm. um but that was lucky for me because they would ask me and you know we had very limited resources to work with far less than a place like pulse does at this point and then very few musicians um capable of really performing an orchestral score. Mm -hmm. But um, we, you know, look hither and yon and cobble together a little ensemble of musicians and bring them into the little school the college recording studio. Mm -hmm. And I, at that point, I was, I was essentially self, I was taking um, a, um, the standard four-year program in theory and harmony along with okay. my film studies and so forth so I was learning this stuff but still consider myself a novice mm -hmm. not not in any way my, my sight reading skills were not terrific um, I had no training in orchestration whatsoever so I was faking it mm -hmm. basically which was all these guys really wanted they wanted you know a clever tune, nicely arranged, mm -hmm. and, and then they were happy. They weren't looking for really serious dramatic underscoring. But the process of doing it taught me about things like synchronization. Mm -hmm. It taught me about um, the, the notion of um, uh, dramatic beats mm -hmm. and dramatic arcs within a scene, within a piece of music and so forth. Stuff that I'd always kind of sensed was going on even when I was a little kid and I was listening to film music, but I never studied it, much less 
try to actually do it. Yeah. And um, that was my first exposure to writing music to picture. Mm -hmm. um, then I went back and spent another uh, six, seven years trying to develop a, a pop career, a career as a songwriter again, but never really forgetting what I'd learned about um, film. And it was in the early 80s when I finally got, I got a job working as a production manager at Columbia College Film School in Chicago. And again, what would happen is that the, the students would they'd be looking around for music and they'd say, hey, this guy Andy Hill, mm -hmm. the guy who's running you know, the production department, he writes music. I think he might have some experience yeah. like this. I think, I think you know? uh, Christopher Young mentioned that most of his early work as well was scoring student films. Yeah. It seems to be, a re even around that time, and I think nowadays it is a real in, I think. You know, you might, you might get an ex-Scorsese, you know, as a student and you're on scoring his film, you know, uh, it's, to me, it seems like a real, a legitimate way of, of showcasing your, what you can do, you know, there's no real expectation on you, you know, as if you were getting a, you know, a massive paid gig straight right. away, you've, you've got that kind of safety net, as it were, scoring, so it's, it's just interesting that, that uh, the two of you guys, Christopher and yourself, started um, working on student films in the beginning. Yeah, I, I think it's far and away um, the best the best bet for the long game mm -hmm. um, and a better bet than um, building the world's greatest website, mm -hmm. developing the world's greatest marketing campaign, um, grooming yourself like a top model, mm -hmm. as some of these composers now feel compelled yeah. to do. Yeah. Um, everybody these days feels compelled to have a brand, mm -hmm. and that brand has to include the look of your site, the look of your logo, and even your look, and yeah. so forth. Yeah. The fact is, though, that although the work with students isn't going to pay very well, if anything, yeah. in the beginning, you're absolutely right that you're chances of finding the kid whose film is going to go on and make a splash at Sundance mm -hmm. or in Venice or in Berlin mm -hmm. among the um, students or graduates of a prestigious film school. Mm -hmm. It can't just be any film school, but I mean if you cultivate the kids who are at NYU or USC or UCLA yeah. Or um, I'm trying to think of what the equivalents in Europe would be. There are a couple of great film schools in Barcelona. Mm -hmm. um, London, there's maybe. the London Film School. Yeah. Uh, there's the the famous film academy in Poland, uh, which is um, the name escapes me right now. I think it starts with a G. But um, when young composers ask, as they always do, this question about how I get in the gate. Mm -hmm. You know, um, should, I, should I try going around back and getting in the back door since everybody's hammering on the front door? There's crowds lined up. Um, 
composing for media is no longer quite the rarefied specialty it used to be. There are a lot of people trying to do it. And, and so the competition is really stiff. And people ask about, you know, um, how to present their reel, how to present, you know, do I need a business card? Do I need an, a manager? Should I get a personal manager? Should I get an agent, etc.? All of this stuff is secondary to getting films. And I mean short films, long films, feature films, documentary films, experimental films, anything that will draw out from you the, the stuff that you feel you have to give. And if the relationship doesn't click, um, if you find after doing a, a picture or a couple of pictures with a young filmmaker that you're just not quite on the same wavelength, you can move on. But um, mm -hmm. if, if, it does, if it does click, then the, the chances are very good that yeah. that young filmmaker, when they do finally get into the winner's circle at one of these festivals, and that results in a little distribution deal, which then results in their film coming to the notice of bigger yeah. power brokers, whether in Hollywood or London or someplace else. Mm -hmm. So they so now they get their first shot at a at a full fledged studio feature. You know, uh, instead of having a, uh, a half a million dollar budget, they've got ten or twenty or something like that, and maybe a decent cast. Who are they going to turn to? Yeah. But the person who, who now they, the two of you have developed a kind of shorthand, a kind of creative shorthand. It doesn't always happen. Yeah. Sometimes the producers say, no, 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 we don't want that kid you've been working with, you know, slumming with. We want, we want you to have a real composer. Yeah. And they'll give the, the younger composer the boot. Yeah. But even, even but, still, you being the composer, having worked with him, you know, as his name goes, you still scored his film to That's the right. to the general to the general lay person. You know, it's it might it mightn't be, you know, um, the last temptation of Christ, or you know, but you worked on one of his films anyway, so you can say that I worked with the next Scorsese. I'm not working with him anymore, but you know that that can be your. That's absolutely Your right. Just trajectory. like the fellas we talked to the other day, Danny yeah. Bensey and um, and Sander Urians, they may or may not ever do another film for Denis Villeneuve. Mm -hmm. um, but they did one, and it was a good yeah, one. That was a good one, yeah. And they're going to be able to hang that, you know, on yeah. their wall for a long time to come. Uh, that being associated with him just at the time his star was rising. Yeah, yeah. Because he had, he had done an early film, uh, I, I mentioned the other day, called Incendies, that not a lot of people saw. It was mm -hmm. French-Canadian, French-language Okay, okay. But it was one of these films that um, did festivals really well, won a couple of prestigious awards, and directed attention yeah. and heat toward him. Mm. And it was just as that heat was starting to go towards him that these two guys came on and did yeah. that Jake Gyllenhaal film yeah. for him. Anime, yeah, yeah. And that will mean, uh, I mean, there's no doubt that that led then 
yep. to the series of films that yep. they've they've worked on um, yeah. and are still working on. Yeah, there's no there's no doubt, and then that's just you build on that and you build on that, and your your yeah. career goes just as fast as the director's. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not as fast, but at least it's it gains traction and momentum. You know, at the same time, because you both started from the same the same place working on those student student movies, you know, and I think even working with a student director is also beneficial because it they'll be they'll be taught the industry professional you know standards like you know safety codes and and timing notes and and all of the all of the the traditions and the what's expected to function with them and they'll be given you they'll be speaking to you in those terms they'll be you know dubbing the picture in the same way maybe not with the with the massive budgets and the live orchestras but the basic underlying principles will remain the same so if you're working with with a with a student director who's been taught correctly you know in inverted commas there is no correctly but you know the standard then your transition into working with other directors or working with more established directors will be seamless because you'll have that experience absolutely of working uh, it, there it's, it's remarkable how um, consistent the dynamic between a composer and a filmmaker mm -hmm. and all the variables that come into play the spotting of the mm -hmm. film the um, the need to get the director's approval um, the constant <coughs> revisions yeah um, the uh, the hurry up and wait situation. It's not ready. It's not ready. It's not yeah, ready. All yeah. of a sudden, go. Yeah. Even <laughs> um, even understanding, you know, the director's vague terminologies for what he wants. You know, um, if you're dealing with a director, a student director, that's not. I'm sure that you had these experiences when you were scoring the student movies. Um, you know, if someone who's describing um, what what we would say is, you know. Um, Staccato, you know, and he would right. say, make make it pointy or make right, it right. make it like you know like da da da, and you'd be like, oh, staccato, well, I don't care what it that is. That doesn't <laughs> change. That the basic yeah. nature of that dialogue doesn't change yeah. whether it's Spielberg and John Williams, yeah. or you and your student fil filmmaker. It yeah. remains pretty much the same. Now, you know, my my story actually starts to take on a little bit more narrative interest mm -hmm. when I left Chicago. I'd gone to school in New York, came back to Chicago, started my what turned out to be my last band, and then had this experience working for Columbia College, mm -hmm. where I was, among other things, teaching a class to young filmmakers and how to use music effectively in their films. Mm -hmm. Now, again, this was kind of another fake it till you make it sort of thing, because really, what business did I have? I was only a few years older than the kids I was teaching. Mm -hmm. And I had no real industry experience, but I had studied and I had read every book that was then available out there about this. But every week to prepare for my, my lecture, I would call people in Hollywood, cold. <laughs> All right. I, there was no Google then, mm -hmm. so yellow. it took some doing to actually get the numbers. Couldn't even do it with a yellow page. You mm -hmm. should have to call somebody who'd call somebody else, who'd call somebody else and uh. finally get back to you with the number of a secretary or something <laughs> like that. And you'd make these cold calls. So I would call, say, the, um, the head of music at, 
at Warner Brothers, the head of music at Universal, the head mm -hmm. of music at Disney, and so forth, and lesser people as well. Mm -hmm. um, if I could come up with the name of an orchestrator, or um, or you know, God willing, a composer, I would call those people and I would introduce myself, and it's, I wouldn't say. I'm an aspiring young composer. How can I get in the business? Yeah, I'd use this um, almost uh, uh, the anonymity, the because yeah. uh, um, I didn't want to threaten them. I'd say I'm 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 a teacher. I'm teaching a course in in music for film. Mm -hmm. Do you mind? Can you give me five minutes? Yeah, I'd just like to shoot some questions at you about how the process actually mm -hmm. works. How does a composer get hired these days? You know, what kind of skill do they have? What kind of training do they have? Um, how much do filmmakers know about music? Mm -hmm. Things like this. And little by little, I started to fill up this notebook mm -hmm. with names and information. I think that's called the New York Hustle, isn't it? <laughs> and I um, also learned that there were, there were these people out there in Hollywood they called music executives and music supervisors. Now, mm -hmm. I knew about composers and I knew about directors knew about arrangers and orchestrators and conductors. Mm -hmm. But I had no idea that there were people who actually got paid to oversee or to mm -hmm. administer the process mm -hmm. of creating music for film. And I thought, well, you know, I, I, I've got a college degree, and now I've had a couple of years under my belt running this little film department. So I have kind of administrative experience. Mm -hmm. Not exactly executive experience, no. but... I can call myself yeah. that. Um, and maybe I could get one of those gigs. Mm -hmm. And I had, at that point, I was married, had a young wife and a child, a little baby. So I had to worry about how the bills were getting paid. Mm -hmm. Now, my ultimate goal, of course, was to compose. That's okay. all I still wanted to do. But I thought, if I can get myself out there mm -hmm. and get one of these more administrative gigs, then I can get onto the scoring stages. I can mm -hmm. get into the studio. I can meet these people. I can find out how yeah. it's done. And as Alan Mankin, um, who was one of my first quote-unquote clients, All right, as okay. a composer, said to me one time, I said, but Alan, you know, you know, because <clears throat> Alan would always say, Andy, you're, you, you are the finest music supervisor I've ever worked with. And I would say, but Alan, I'm not really a music supervisor. I'm yeah. like you. I want to be a composer. Yeah. I, I'm a songwriter. And he would say to me, listen, my friend, whatever you're doing in the meantime is what you're doing. It's what you're doing, yeah. yeah. So right now, be happy yeah. that you're so good at this job. Um, because it's what you are, and, and it's how people are getting to know you around town. Yeah. And that was like uh, 1987, 88, cut to five, six years later. That became my life. I and was- you're, you're in I was working LA for, at this point? I was in LA, I, I, I went to LA, I had to go, I had to go out there cold three times, just driving across the country on my own, um, staying in cheap motels or campgrounds, whatever. I would go out to LA, I would take this little notebook, notebook yeah. that I had, you know, with phone numbers. And, and to remember now, this is not that long ago, but it's long enough that people didn't even have cell phones. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's it's me stopping by the side of the road and making yeah. a pay phone yeah. call from a booth. You don't see that in the movies now. So I'd be like literally outside the Paramount Studios yeah. gate on a phone booth calling the secretary whose number I had somehow <laughs> finagled out of someone <laughs> to ask them if they could give me a gate pass. Right. Because the one what you want to do is get onto the lot, mm-hmm. get past the guards at the gate. Because once you're on the lot, you start going around to these production company offices, mm-hmm. leaving your resume, your CV. Or in my case, I was leaving cassette tapes right. of my music. I didn't know that composers didn't get a job that way. You no. don't really get jobs by leaving resumes and cassettes. No. You get them through, you know, personal relationships yeah. and, and personal contacts. But I would, you know, it made me feel good that I was at least getting in there mm-hmm. and talking to people. And little by little, you know, this people knew about this ambitious guy from Chicago who'd driven all the way out to L.A., to try and make his career in in film music, and um, I don't, I needn't tell you a lot of the details except that I was able to meet with every head of music for every studio in Hollywood, and some of them were um, legendary people like Lionel Newman and Harry Loyevsky at mm-hmm. MGM, who are long gone now. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Everywhere I went, I used the same approach, which, again, was not to say, I'm a composer and I need a gig. Will you give me one? It was, I'm out here investigating the possibility of moving my family here. Mm -hmm. I'd like to make a career somehow in the business of making music for films and television. Um, Can I ask you a few questions? And they'd almost always be willing to give me that. Uh, Except for one guy named Brendan Cahill, who was the, uh, for a brief time, was the head of music at Universal's. And he said, get the fuck out of my office. (laughs) He was a a British guy. He said, you know, um, (laughs) I forget his exact words were something like, how do I know they didn't send you here? (laughs) To you know, as a stalker yeah. for my gig, yeah. basically, you could you could be sitting in this chair tomorrow. Yeah. So I'm not going to give you the time of day. Everybody else was very kind, mm-hmm. including the head of music at Disney, who had been prior to that Sylvester Stallone's personal music guy, his personal music supervisor. Right. And he was a sweet guy, but he was a real '80s old school gold chain and coke spoon right kind of guy and a lot like a record guy not mm-hmm. really a mm-hmm. movie music guy so he looked at me and he looked at my cv and he looked at the fact that i'd gone to film school he looked at the fact that i could write music he looked at the fact that i taught film music mm-hmm. and he said you know we don't have anybody here like you we don't have anybody who actually understands anything about music for the movies. Yeah. He said, I got publishing people, I got record people, I got technical people, but I don't have anybody like you. And I said, I basically said, I will do all the crap that you do not want to do. Mm-hmm. I'll um, deal with the unions. I'll deal with um, the... Um, the recording engineers and mm-hmm. the um, and the archiving of 
our masters, and um, I will deal with um, the artists in general. <laughs> I'll deal with the artists, but I'll also deal with the. I, I'm you know I won't just be a star fucker. I mm -hmm. will ta I will I will work with. I'll try to find build up a team yeah. of arrangers and orchestrators. Because um, Disney was Disney needed a lot of music. They needed mm -hmm. music for the parks. Mm -hmm. They needed music for all their TV spinoffs and their direct to DVD things and yeah. so forth. Yeah. So he basically said to me, "Kid, you got a gig. Go home. It was like just before Christmas. You go home. Tell your wife Merry Christmas. You're going to Hollywood." <laughs> and, Amazing. Uh, I got home, and in those days we had answering machines. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you press the beep. You know, you have two new messages, and I and one of the messages was from this f this fellow, and it was, and yeah, I I don't know how to tell you this, but well, I've been canned. I've been fired. Shit. You know, and um, and he said, but I like you, kid. And I'd like for you to have some success out here. So I'm going to make an introduction to the guy who's probably going to replace me. His name was Chris Montan. And you stay in touch with him and just keep, you know, persevere. Mm -hmm. And eventually you'll get in. And he was right. And Chris Montan became the head of music at Disney, remained the head of music at Disney all the way through. He just retired two years ago. Right. Um, and he, it, it took me a year and a half of, uh, persistence, but mm -hmm. I finally got the gig that I had originally sort of been promised by this right. guy. And, um, and I don't think I'd been there for longer than six months when Chris, my boss, walked in with this very nervous... Um, kind of lost looking guy and said Andy this is Alan Menken <laughs> he's here to do Little Mermaid what age would Alan have been at this point Alan was maybe um, 32 right so he'd never done a film before um, never written a score before other than incidental music for mm -hmm. his Broadway stuff um, and you and I'm still faking it yeah. you know by the way, but uh, you know, you know this stuff, Andy, right? You know how click tracks work. Yeah. Of <laughs> you course. You know how Barbara, of course I do. <laughs> you know, yeah. you understand empty time code. You understand all, all this stuff. stuff. There's nothing I can't learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I made it my business to learn Everything. every single thing that someone like Alan would need to, um, so that there'd be no impediments in his way mm -hmm. through his you know rise at disney and it wasn't a meteoric rise was, yeah. and um the i did four movies with him and lion king with hans um what were the movies you did with with alan little mermaid little mermaid beauty and beauty the beast, beast aladdin yeah. and pocahontas yeah yeah anastasia wasn't alan Anastasia was not Alan. It was two other writers who were, were colleagues from Broadway of, right. of Alan's, Lynn uh, Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty. Right. And um, I got that gig. I had actually, by that time, I had left Disney. Okay. On a calculated risk. I had 
just I finished Lion King. Lion King was a huge hit. Mm-hmm. Lion King was the sort of movie if you're associated with it, it builds careers. Of course, of course. And I thought now's the time for me to either try and hop to another studio and get the top gig mm-hmm. as head of music, or set up my own music production and supervision company. Okay. And because I saw there was a new wave coming, basically a lot of this work was now being farmed out and privatized mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because the studios could no longer afford to keep all this staff yeah. on salary. Well, this would have been around the millennium? This was just, just before that. Just before. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. like 1997, 98. Okay, yeah. And I started a company. I found a place. I based it out of a, a post-production building in Hollywood. And... Um, that's when I got the the Anastasia gig came as a result of having okay. done the Disney stuff because Fox wanted to duplicate the Disney formula. Right. And so naturally they wanted to hire the guy who'd been involved yeah. with, with that. Mm-hmm. Um, then I did James and the Giant Peach with yeah. Randy Newman. That was for Disney, mm-hmm. but it was a... But, but it you was were a job third I got party, as a freelancer. Yeah, yeah as yeah, a third yeah. party. And I did a, a string of smaller projects for mm-hmm. Disney um, over the next few years. The, the great dream that I had of parlaying the success at Disney into, you know, like a Clive Davis kind of career was you get used to in life to detours mm-hmm. and there were a number of them that came up right around the millennium the biggest one of which was that the effective end of the record business yeah as yeah. we know it and Napster and all of Napster, that yeah, the yeah, reason yeah. this affected me is because as a freelance as a third party music supervisor my salary, my fee was generally paid by an advance from the record company. Mm-hmm. So the, the film's producer or the music executive would approach the record company, make a soundtrack deal. Sometimes it was an in-house deal, like if the mo- movie was being done for Warner's, it might be one of the Warner Brothers labels that was mm-hmm. going to do the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So you'd approach them and you'd say, okay, we need, give us $100,000 or a quarter of a million dollars or a half a million dollars or whatever, depending on the size of the project and the the talent involved. And that advance would, to some degree, subsidize the production of the music Mm -hmm. for the film, including the fee paid to the music supervisor. But that that would be considered a a package deal? It was a a package deal, essentially. And then you could go out, you could hire a composer um, or at least augment um, the you, you could help underwrite the costs of producing the music with mm-hmm. this advance yeah when the record business started to diminish and soundtrack albums were no longer a hot thing mm-hmm. and that starts to happen right around 1999 yeah all that money goes away now all of a sudden music supervisors had to find somewhere to squeeze their fees out of the film budget right totally aside from any any record advance money and films notoriously still today and especially indie films 
you know, um, in that at that time, 1999, 2000, this would have been films produced for the vicinity of five million dollars, maybe up to ten or twelve, but sometimes less than that. Films in that range budgeted nothing for music. Yeah. They, what they would put in there is some music for, for some money for music rights because mm -hmm. okay we want to use this U2 song we want to yeah. use this Madonna song we want to use this New Order song mm -hmm. and we know that's going to cost us a certain amount of money to clear and mm -hmm. license mm -hmm. and get into the film that's where most of their money went what, whatever was left the pittance that was left they would use to hire a music supervisor hoping that the music supervisor could broker in everything else basically get them cheap songs mm -hmm. you know on sweetheart deals that he had with publishers or record companies and get them some young composer, composer yeah. who was willing to work relatively cheap for a package deal mm -hmm. and you know um, either do the whole thing electronically or yeah. go over to Prague or what have you yeah Sofia um, in Bulgaria or something like that yeah but by the time we got to around 2002, 2003, um, I was competing with people who didn't have families, who didn't have children, for gigs that paid, you know, five, ten thousand dollars for the entire yeah. thing for like six months of work that only a couple years before yeah. had paid 60, 75 yeah. more. And it wasn't, uh, it, it simply wasn't a viable thing to do mm -hmm. anymore. So I, I made some efforts to get back into the studio side of things, but all the positions were full. And when, that, when those positions yeah. are full, it's like being director of the FBI or <laughs> like having a seat on the stock exchange. You don't give it up unless you get fired. Yeah. Um, and that's when I decided to teach. Right. Okay. And what I brought to the teaching is the fact that for a 10-year run, um, I'd been on the scoring stage yeah. as the right hand, essentially the sort of like a line producer for, I mean, a lot of these guys are gone now. Maurice Jarre. Yeah. Jerry Goldsmith. John Barry. <laughs> Howard Shore. He's not gone. Um, Zimmer. Elmer, Elmer Bernstein. Um, Hans Zimmer, Mark Isham, Danny Elfman, um, James Newton Howard, Basil Polidorus, um, just about everybody mm -hmm. but John Williams because Disney could never afford John yeah. Williams. I wonder, what, I wonder what a Disney movie scored by John Williams would sound like. Ravel, I think. Yeah, maybe. I think maybe. it would be another, another Ravel's type score. Yeah. Mm. But, but go ahead. So, can we circle back because uh, I want to touch on 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 the Lion King and you, you you spoke about it before, but you didn't know that it was going to be a hit when you when you started on the project. Can you talk us through from you saying or your boss saying that it's this is a this is a, a back burner project until the 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 epiphany when you said right. this is going to be this is going right. to be big right, was right. Your, you said it was your daughter yeah, Disney in those days um, had decided to release one animated musical per year right um, they it actually had begun a year before 
Little Mermaid with a movie called Oliver and Company that was mm -hmm. scored by a series of different Billy Joel, Huey Lewis, okay. uh, the Pointer Sisters were in there. That was followed up by Little Mermaid. And with Little Mermaid, they embraced essentially a, a, a Broadway or West End musical theater model mm -hmm. of producing animated musicals. So they brought in they brought in songwriting team, principally Al Mankin and mm -hmm. Ashman from Broadway. They would develop the material same time as the script was being developed, etc. So they done one a year and with great success. Little Mermaid Oscars. Um, Aladdin. Beauty and the Beast, mm -hmm. Oscars, even a nomination nomination for Best Picture. Yeah. Aladdin, Oscars for score and song. Mm -hmm. um, but Beauty and the Beast is live. They're doing all the, all these films that you oversaw in the 90s are coming back now in live action, aren't they? They're coming back. Uh, First they go, D Disney, you know, knows how to yeah, milk yeah. the franchise. They, they, they put they it out there as a live show, first of all. Right. Then they adapt the live show into a live action film. Yeah. And then they do it on ice. <laughs> That's right. So they've got multiple incarnations of the yeah, same thing. Yeah. But at any rate, um, for some reason, there was a gap year between um, 93 and 95. Mm -hmm. um, and Pocahontas was due in 95, and they, had, they were banking on that one. Um, Howard Ashman, Alan Menken's lyricist, had died, but there, he was now working with a guy named Stephen Schwartz, who had done Pippin. He does Wicked. Wicked then. and all of that. But he hadn't done Wicked. He, no, he, not he, he will go on to do Wicked. That's yeah, right. Yeah. But they had big, big hopes yeah. for Pocahontas. And in the meantime, well, all they had to plug the gap with was this little movie they were calling King of the Jungle, which, as I explained to you guys, it read like, almost more like a, a television cartoon. Mm -hmm. The characters were kind of goofy. I mean, Timba and Pumbaa. Timon and Pumbaa, yeah. Pumba, sorry. Tim, Tim yeah. It's my childhood, Pumba. he'll That's never right. leave me. <laughs> they were still there, um, but the whole thing kind of felt like that. It felt yeah. cartoony, mm -hmm. whereas, what they tried to do with Beauty and the Beast, and, and, and now we're going to do with po Pocahontas, is bring this degree of, of reality, of dramatic reality mm -hmm. to these movies. So anyhow, long story short, they, uh, they didn't have a composer lined up because Alan was committed to Pocahontas. And um, they had a batch of songs they'd commissioned from Elton John, mm -hmm. which um, were, were clever and hooky like all of his stuff but had very little to do with um the setting yeah um of the, the story the goofiness which, of it yeah yeah it was let's put it this way it was if they had left the film as it was it would have felt a bit like um doing a kind of vaudeville shtick about um, the animals of Africa. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, uh, the king of the jungle and his hilarious sidekicks mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and his wicked Uncle Scar and so forth. But it would have been, I think, um, uh, very, very much, probably very much enjoyable to the key target audience of, of kids between, you know, four and nine or yeah. whatever. 
but it, it would never have been a really sizable yeah. hit. Yeah. Um, and what happened, uh, as I explained, is that um, I was assigned to work with the arrangers who were tasked with taking the Elton John songs and essentially setting them up within the script as vehicles that could con convey story. Mm -hmm. So you have character enters, you know, character begins singing, character mm -hmm. B joins in, yeah. character C joins in yeah. on the chorus, and etc. Yeah. And was, um, what was his name, the, the voice of Samba? Um, Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick. Was Matthew Broderick on, was he attached to the project at that point? Or? He probably was attached, but I think at this point they were probably using all ringers, yeah, voice ringers, actors yeah, yeah, yeah. who might be told, okay, eventually Jeremy Irons yeah, is going to yeah. do this role, Matthew Broderick's going to yeah. do this, so we need that kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. But um, we were demoing all these songs with stand-ins, essentially. And um, they weren't coming out too impressively. There's nothing wrong with the songs per se, and there was nothing wrong with the arrangers per se. It was that um, after Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, it was just kind of a letdown. Because those songs were so theatrical. Yeah, yeah, big songs. They felt so much like they belonged on yeah. the big screen and so forth. Um, so, anyhow, this is when a couple of us began brainstorming. Is there another way we can go? We're not going to get Elton back in to write new songs and 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 uh, we didn't and, and, and Elton had no experience with with musical theater mm -hmm. either. So he didn't know people who could really help us. And we couldn't we couldn't go to to Alan and his people. Yeah. They were already busy. Um, and we had we had just done a film with Hans Zimmer, um, an adaptation of the Jack London story White Fang. Mm -hmm. it takes place in the Yukon in the Northwest Territory, um, and it's an action adventure for basically written for young boys right. um, about life, you know, in the Great North. Mm -hmm. And it involved the main character is a dog, right? And um, so. This was one of Disney's staple kind of films. They put out, they, in those days, they put out three or four of these a year. Usually had something to do with an animal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, um, and Hans was, you know, this kind of edgy, electronic, mm -hmm. neo-evangelist kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. But he, he really wanted to do a Disney film. And so we gave him a shot on, on White Fang. Through a series of circumstances, another film was was tossed out, and Hans was there, right time, right place, yeah. and was the only guy who could actually do the gig over Christmas. Mm -hmm. So I, I went over to London with him, and and uh, he while while he literally wrote and recorded this White Fang score in, in a period of about ten days. Um, it's like was it the Jerry Goldsmith story of him scoring? Was it Basic Instinct in? three weeks or yeah something. that's about right and yes. every time he told the story it decreased by by two days yeah and i was yeah. like yeah yeah, yeah, I, had, yeah, yeah. I had three weeks to get that done yeah 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 two and a half weeks to get that done <laughs> well this literally was this was the space between christmas and new year's essentially that's impressive that he had to yeah. write in and he was working with a team of, of writers uh 
guy named Fiacre, Fiacre Trench, who's from, from Ireland. Yeah, Fiacre. Uh, uh, Nick Lenny-Smith uh, was working with him, and Shirley Walker was working with him. So Hans would be at the keyboard cranking out themes mm -hmm. for each of the characters, light motifs, and so forth, and then the his composer orchestrators would take those and run with them yeah. and go and, and, and arrange them for the film. At any rate, to cut to the chase, the, the score got back to L.A. And in the end, through for reasons that were political and not musical, it was not used in White Fang. But what it did is it convinced everybody mm -hmm. that Hans could do animals. Yeah. He could do... Um, Big songs. Heart-swelling emotion. Mm -hmm. He could do melody. Yeah. All these things that he had, in, in, in a way, maybe he was like the smartest guy in the world, because I think he wanted Lion King. Yeah. And in a sense, this was his audition for it. It was, it was, it had electronic elements, which were part of his patented sound, but mm -hmm. it was mostly an orchestral score. Mm -hmm. It had warmth. Um, it had choral um, passages and so forth. So... It, it made it a whole lot easier then for me and yeah. for and my boss and the people who believed in him to go to the powers that be at Disney and say, he can do it. This is the guy, yeah, yeah. And I truly think that the hiring of Hans Zimmer, which coincided with a few other things, changes on the film. It, it coincided with... Um, Jeremy Irons coming on board as Scar. It coincided with um, an edict from the head of the studio, from Jeffrey Katzenberg, that um, all the cartoony stuff mm -hmm. had to go. Right. That he wanted the movie to... Become more serious? To, 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 to be in keeping with the, the new style mm -hmm. that they developed you know, on films like Beauty and the Beast. And that forced the filmmakers and the writers to reach higher and to begin to think, okay, what, what really is this story? What are its analogs? The, um, the son of the deposed, assassinated king is sent into exile mm -hmm. um, where he has to rediscover, you know, his destiny yeah, and return yeah. to claim... The, th the, the throne, throne yeah, and his yeah. rightful place. Well, all of a sudden, it started to feel kind of Shakespearean. Yeah, it started to feel mythical. Yeah, and Homeric. that in turn yeah. pumped up the people working around Hans to make these arrangements more and more um, epic, epic in scope yeah, yeah. And, and 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 ambition. And that finally, and then you know, Hans kept saying to me. To put the icing on this cake, we really need to go to Africa. Yeah. And I would go back to my boss and say, to put the icing on this <laughs> cake, we really need to, go, need to go to Africa. And he would say, you know, in your dreams. Yeah. You know, Disney will never pay for that. You know, something you can do. Because he wanted the, the vocal sound yeah, yeah, that's yeah. associated with South Africa. He, he tours with them now, doesn't he? The, yeah, yeah. The, the guy that did yeah, yeah. the introduction. Lebo Morake, Lebo M, yes. Yeah. And, it's um, amazing that, he's, that they're still together yeah. nearly 
over 20 years later absolutely and um so but the the nail in the coffin seemed to be the fact that south africa at that point was in chaos yeah um there was white flight yeah uh mandela had won the election Mm -hmm. Uh, the uh, Truth and Reconci- Reconciliation Committees, the so mm-hmm. forth, that were going to um, deal with the injustices of apartheid, mm-hmm. were were now enforced. So there was a lot of worry that there might actually mm-hmm. be civil was the em- war. was the embargo still there? Uh, I don't know about that. I know that there was a real worry yeah. that there was going to be civil war. Yeah, because Paul Simon did. Yeah. He went like, a few years b- before, and you know they told him not right, to. Right, <laughs> right, right. So at that point, my boss and the producer of the film said, came to me and said, you're going to have to tell Hans to forget about this because even if we had the money to send you guys down there, even if we had the time to send you guys down there, the insurance risk for the studio, mm-hmm. you know, if your little chartered plane goes, gets shot down in the middle <laughs> of a South African civil war, or if the tapes... Mm-hmm. And the, these days we were still dealing with yeah. big boxes of, yeah. you know, one inch or two inch yeah. open reel tape. Um, you guys could be hostages. The project could be held hostage, mm-hmm. etc. No, you're not going. And I know we have to wrap up here, but I will just tell you that um, I made uh, the most passionate plea uh, I've ever made mm-hmm. for any artistic cause in my life, including right. my own, um, that they allow us to do this. And it was essentially by, you know, um, playing them recordings mm-hmm. of what these ensembles sounded like down there and, you know, doing mashups and so forth with mm-hmm. the Lion King stuff. Everybody kind of got a sense of what it might be. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember exactly what the breakthrough was, Connor, when they finally said, "Yeah, you can do it." Um, but you got it. You got to push through, and it, it went I got to push yeah. through, and they put me on the plane with with Lev Oem, with the uh, the guy whose voice opens yeah. Lion King. Fantastic with voice. With Jay Rifkin, who was at that time Hans's chief engineer, and Nick Lenny Smith, who was at that time Hans's senior orchestrator mm-hmm. so the four of us flew to Johannesburg and then took a, a private plane to Umbato, Umbato yeah, yeah. Um, where there was this amazing studio called BOP no idea if it's still there extravagantly outfitted studio that nobody used because it was out in the middle of the South African veldt right it was a tax write-off for somebody, yeah. I suppose, but it was gorgeous. And we bust in kids from Durban and Johannesburg. Suatu. Um, who had been, uh, exactly, we had had them working to tapes um, prepared for them by Hans and Lebel. And uh, they were, and I hired a guy named Mungeni Ngema, who had had a successful musical called Sarafina mm-hmm. um, that was that used some of this South African township right. style music and so he was down there coaching these kids weeks ahead of our mm-hmm. arrival so that by the time they finally got bussed into the studio they were sort of ready to they go they were ready to go yeah yeah and the rest is history then yeah. just 
rest is history and um and then anyhow uh to to wrap it up i i left hollywood in 2006 i've been teaching summer workshops for film composers coming mm -hmm. out from chicago for the past three years and they've mm -hmm. been very successful and the same school columbia college called me and said we want to start a master's program Right. Would you run it for us? And I, I had, up until that point, I, I had, I would have said no. Mm -hmm. But at this stage, I said, this sounds like a good idea. Yeah, sounds a good idea. And that led to six years in Chicago, which led to three years overseas um, with Berkeley Berk and then yeah. in Belgium. And that's how I met Derek. Derek here. Yeah. yeah. And you have just just finally you have your new book. Is it is it out or is it coming out? The book it, um, it's here's, out in digital. Here's what I did. I, I I wanted to write something that I knew uh, would be a hard sell because it's a niche market. It is. Um, although it's a growing market. Was it like the twenty first century on the track? And that's well, that's what from your lips to God's yeah. ear. That's what some people are calling it. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I would, I would now, agree. On the track was really the only. Yeah. Um, in terms of sort of technique, yeah, how to, yeah, you know, how is it done with, with all, real life examples as well? All the other books dealing with film music, including some of those written by composers um, and people who do know the craft, mm -hmm. have essentially been, you know, two three hundred page of yeah. of a verbiage of words, yeah, you know, talking about the business, talking about. Um, the realities of, 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 of working in the entertainment business, budgets, mm -hmm. um, legal issues, contract negotiation, things like that, but generally not dealing much with the music. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons for that is that it's expensive yeah. and difficult to get that music licensed mm -hmm. so that people can actually look at it and see what the composers did. Yeah. The only guy who had done that prior to, to me was Fred Carlin yeah, with On the Track. On track yeah. um, it's and a it big book. Been done in, it is a great book, and it was very much my model mm -hmm. for this. Um, so when I decided I wanted to do this, Colin, I said it's going to be expensive, it's going to be time consuming, I'm never going to get a book advance to help defray my expenses or cover the time I have to spend writing this. And I just heard not too long before that about this whole Kickstarter thing. Right, right, you did a Kickstarter? And I decided, what the hell, I, you know? Yeah. And I said, I won't do it. Like, people are trying to do Kickstarter to raise money to make a movie yeah. or, or, or something they like that. They do them for everything. They go, they, everything. Go to, they go to everybody, you know, brothers and cousins and, 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 and anybody. I said, I'm going to try a different tack. I said, the people who will benefit the most from the publication of a book like this are the people in the craft themselves mm -hmm. because it brings attention to their work. Uh, it, it, makes, it, it, it makes their work look mm -hmm. noble and exciting and worth worthy of scholarship and yeah. so forth yeah and guess what those people also can afford <laughs> yeah you know to help me bankroll the kickstarter campaign yeah so that's what i did i essentially directed the campaign to people in in the industry mm -hmm. and and they were very generous i didn't ask for a lot of money i just needed enough money 
to buy myself like three or four months uninterrupted to mm. get the thing off the ground and get the and determine how much it was going to cost to license this music and um but i got help from I got help from John Powell, I got help from Don Davis, I yeah. got help from James Newton Howard, I got help from all sorts of wonderful people um, who kicked in and gave me the head start I needed. Yeah. Uh, in January of last year, of 2016, I put the book up online mm -hmm. for sale as a download. It's the complete book, yeah. um, but it's self-edited. It has not had the services of, of a professional copy editor to go in and weed out every little typographical error. Mm -hmm. um, it has not had the professionals, uh, the services of professional um, score editor to go in and weed out every possible notational yeah. error. Although I have, I've sent every bar of music that's in the book to the composers. To the composers, yeah. To proof themselves. So I feel pretty confident about what's Yeah, I've read it and there's online. nothing that there's nothing that has jumped out at me yeah. going you know, but I, I, I wasn't looking for errors at the same time, you know, yeah. I was just trying to digest information, which is I must say it it's incredibly easily digestible. You know, the the the, the way it reads is it it's so it's so clean and clear. You know, you've got a little bit of text that's talking about the 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 context, the situation. You know, the 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 deaths, the the scene where where um, Bruce Willis realizes he's dead, and and here's the the music that makes that scene from James Newton Howard mm -hmm. that makes it seem, you know, so good that, that right. gives it that 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 the third dimension, and here's a reduction right. of that sad music. You can see how he's moving harmonically, you can see how he's moving melodically, thematically, and I, I, was, I read it over Christmas, and you know, it, it was it was the perfect segue for, for your lectures, yeah. you know, it, it, I think it should be a, a required reading for anyone who's taking your classes. Um, I'm you know, really whereas, happy to whereas, hear. Whereas on the track is, it's a, it's a big endeavor, you know, yeah. it's a huge, um, you know, it's a dip in a notebook, it's like reading yeah. Adler or something yeah, like yeah. that, you know, it's really dense. Yeah. It is. It is dense, and it um, and it's also um, kind of equally directed to people like music editors mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, and orchestrators and uh, and the ancillary yeah. crafts. Um, this is just about the music. Yes, and uh, I'm I'm really glad to hear that it's clear mm -hmm. because writing about music and finding words that sing yeah you know that speak in the way that music does is is tricky mm -hmm. and i i'm hoping that what composers can use this for is to kind of it's like reverse engineering it's mm -hmm. reverse scoring yeah now the work is done composers delivered the score and it's on the screen and we know it's effective and we know it works when we think about a film like uh, like the matrix or um Perfume, the story mm -hmm. of a murderer, mm -hmm. um, or Danny Elfman's Alice in Wonderland. We already know that it works. We want to yeah. understand how, how and why. And the book, the idea of the book is that you sit down either with the book 
on the screen or opened in front of you as a text. And it'll be available as a text this year this through year. Hal Leonard. Do you, know, um, do you know what month that'll be available in? Well, it was originally supposed to be April, and because of the um, editorial, because of all the clearance yeah. that's required, they've pushed the actual street date to June 1st. Right. They're going to start taking pre-orders mm -hmm. in, in April, is what they've told me. Right. Um, but anyhow, you open the book in front of you, you have the film on the screen, you have your keyboard, your MIDI keyboard in front of you, and basically you can... Um, you can use these reductions to recreate yeah. and to understand how the composer approached mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. each dramatic challenge they had to face in the course of doing that film. How they answered objections that the director had, mm -hmm. how they uh, solved um, you know, the kinds of problems are the scenes not scary enough, the scenes yeah. not funny enough, the scenes not romantic enough. Yeah. Uh, and because the book was written in collaboration with the composers, with their, them being uh, interviewed, and, uh, you know, I'd shoot an email off yeah, and say, yeah. you know, I'm looking at this cue right now and I just don't, you know, there's there are two bars here I just don't understand. Yeah, How yeah. in the world did you come up with this? Yeah. I, th I think one, one, one of the things is, like, you know, understanding and, and trying to digest, you know, s standard repertoire is is a, is much easier in many respects because it it follows on. You know, like you've got you've got your 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 start, your middle, and end, and it's clear. And it's here's the development of the theme. Here's theme two yeah. presented, and it's and it's dominant and blah 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 blah. Whereas film music, it it's so volatile. It just yeah changes it like, you know i've written a piece here i've just i've just submitted it and it the first half is is classic orchestral then the second half is orchestral with with synths and it's like oh, what well, how has it changed like so if you're if you're talking to james you know, it's like you know how, you, i can't explain these two bars here like what have you done and he, mm -hmm. he's no reason to because it doesn't relate to it doesn't have to relate it's it, it can do it at once, right, <laughs> you right. know. So, what, what was his reply to you when when you said to him that you didn't understand these two bars? Well, what these guys and it wasn't it wasn't James. In it wasn't James. Um, most of my questions, um, a, a lot of them were for Don Davis because right. the um, the Matrix stuff. Yeah, in the Matrix, there are musical effects like he had to find they use this thing called bullet time which mm -hmm. is the slow motion used in the matrix that makes it look like the main character the lead character is in slow-mo and the world around them is moving at a normal tempo yeah, yeah. okay um so it's a push-pull kind of effect and uh, don had to find musical statements and gestures that are the counterpart yeah. of that. So I had a lot of questions about that, about whether my um, um, accent, dynamic, and articulation okay. marks were okay. correct mm -hmm. in really expressing what he wanted to do. A lot of my questions for composers were about articulations and mm -hmm. so forth, because when you're dealing with you're working from a concert score. Right. You saw, like, you see how sloppy some of yeah, these scores are, yeah. basically. Um, 
and some like so you recreated them all yourself I had from to some recreate them all basically so amazing um, and and what with Morricone's untouchable score had hardly any uh dynamic markings or accents or anything in it because he dictates all that stuff yeah. from the stand from yeah. the podium amazing um, so there were a lot of questions about that sort of thing mostly detail questions technical okay. questions okay. and it was an enjoyable process you know you think it was uh, it was arduous but it was it did was you find like, yourself learning things that you oh, didn't know hell yes hell yes it was like I look at it as a akin to maybe um if an archaeological, if you're one of these people like Indiana Jones who's absolutely fascinated by like how the pyramids were yeah. constructed or something, you just can't wait to get down there in those chambers yeah. and yeah. find out what their purpose was. That's mm -hmm. what it was like That's for me. I I love this stuff. I love film music moves me. Mm -hmm. It always has. Music in general moves me. But there's something about the 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 the, the synthesis of, of of picture and music. There's something that occurs yeah. that is greater than the sum of the it's parts. The, it's the Wagner's total work, isn't it? That's, that's right. That's, I think that's exactly that's, what I think yeah. cinema is the realization yeah. of that. Yeah. that uh, I would agree. I, agree. I, I, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the German yeah. word, but I know exactly uh, what you I mean. I know the total Kunstwerk right. or something. Right. Total, I'm, total music. My, uh, something. Gestam the Kunstwerk. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm not even going to try and butcher the German language yeah. on the internet. Um, but... I have always said if if Wagner was alive in the twenty first century, the the water uh, the 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 water tank with the um, WB right. would just be a W. Right, right. <laughs> I think you're probably right. I think there are a number of people who would have made their made their trade as, as yeah. film composers yeah. had they been around now. Um, but I I I know I find the work fascinating. It was mm. it was particularly the the um, the degree of accuracy that had to be brought to these reductions mm -hmm. was um, you know caused me um, not only a lot of long nights but a lot of you know aching joints and yeah. fingers and neck muscles yeah. and back and so forth yeah. because it's you you you've copied your yeah. own yeah, work before yeah. you know how arduous and you, and you it did many reductions and many mock-ups of of it all as well to hear that it sounded right i did midi i if i if i needed to if i needed to get a a, a broad understanding of the composer's approach i would do a midi mock-up mm -hmm. beforehand in most cases the where I was, was already enough. familiar with the composer's work, the score was enough, and what I would do is I would do the reduction. I would decide, uh, first of all, going through the bar, which, um, which parts I would, I would call for the, mm -hmm. uh, for the reduction, uh, you know, eliminating doublings and, and, mm -hmm. and, and incidental parts and things like that that weren't central yeah, to yeah, yeah. The, the idea of the cue. Then I would decide, you know, how much of it I would reduce. Sometimes couldn't do the entire cue, mm -hmm. um, never could do the entire score. Yeah. Um, and finding ways to build the reduction so that they would really show students yeah, how, how this particular composer yeah. worked as opposed yeah. to another composer yeah. and so forth. Do all that and then, uh, and then work direct into finale 
and keep playing back the crappy sounding, mm-hmm. you know, finale MIDI, mm-hmm. you know, until I was convinced that the um, things like syncopation and so forth yeah. were were properly notated. Mm-hmm. What it's, time do you have? It's so difficult. Uh, we're all on just six o'clock. Okay. So uh, just just to wrap up, my um, the. The one, the last question I wanted to ask you, and I, I was kind of wanted to have a like reoccurring theme for anyone that comes on, would be, if you could choose one director, one composer, to work with now, one film, if you could have one director, one composer, and one film, off the top of your head, what what would you have? As a music producer, as a yeah, music yeah. supervisor, and as a fan, and as a fan, yeah. Um, I would um, I would love I've never done a, a score a movie with Elliot Goldenthal Elliot Goldenthal I've worked with almost everybody else and and there are some very exciting up-and-comers mm-hmm. but for sort of like a total immersion musical experience I would love to work with him I would love to see him working with someone the level when, when he when he did his work with Neil Jordan mm-hmm. it was the best work that Elliot's done but Neil isn't as active anymore as he as he was before so it would have to be somebody on the level of like a Paul Thomas Anderson, the guy who right. did There Will Be Blood yeah, yeah, and The Master. Um, and something that ambitious, yeah. that big in theme. Mm-hmm. Um, I like I like Chris Nolan. I like yeah. David Fincher. I'm very drawn to all of these guys. Um, but I think um, I'm most drawn to people who tackle the sort of yeah. big subjects and the yeah. big concepts, and yeah. that's something that Elliot would be perfect for. Um, and yeah, I think um, I what I wish they would do. In fact, those guys would be perfect for it. I I wrote a uh, screenplay a couple years back based on the life and works of a character I hugely admire Nikola Tesla yeah um, which Hollywood's been talking about a Tesla film since the 70s and wow. still hasn't come through with one other than that cameo yeah. from David yeah. Bowie in the press they might get there they've done Stephen Hawking they've done right uh, Alan Turing so they need a John von Neumann and an Alan and a, and a Tesla Nikola Tesla but you know Paul Thomas Anderson or someone like David Fincher directing I don't know Johnny Depp or someone <laughs> that level as Tesla yeah yeah with, with, I can see m- it. with music by by Elliot Goldenthal would be a great uh, that's a hit that's a hit make it happen yeah okay Andrew uh, thanks for coming on I really appreciate you taking the time is there anywhere that people can find you online is there a Twitter account or there's a first of all the the website that 
is designed to uh, to allow downloads of the book is not just for downloads of the book. It also has mm-hmm. a, there's a blog there. Yeah. I'll embed um, the link. I'll embed the link where this where this podcast. That's will be. right. And um, and there's also an opportunity to to for feedback and okay. dialogue with me via the the website. And it's just scoringthescreen.com. All one word. All one sc- word. All scoring the screen. Scoringthescreen.com. Okay. And. You can go directly to the um, contact mm-hmm. page if you want to leave me a note. Um, Great. There's a there's a linked Facebook page also called Scoring the Screen mm-hmm. that is an uh, an open forum page, so anybody who wants to can can awesome. leave, can, leave awesome. can post to the page. I try to keep both of these relatively up to date. When mm-hmm. I hear about something exciting or someone out there who's doing something interesting, when I do an interview. Yeah. Or I get news about the book or something like that. I'll post it. Yeah. Um, I'm not as diligent as I should be, but, <laughs> yeah, uh, but we can't be everywhere at yeah. once. But I, I highly recommend for everyone to check this podcast out to to go and and look at that book. I think it it'll be in every film scoring uh, class in the next ten years. That's my that's my prediction. I think that's where your your You'll strike oil there I hope, I in hope the education got, business. I believe in your crystal my, ball. My, my Delphi <laughs> powers. Okay, Andrew, thanks so much for coming on. It's been on. a pleasure, and uh, anytime, man. Yeah, we'll speak soon. Looking forward to being back in Dublin.